Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the uh, engagement with the Old Testament of our Bibles, you would expand our view of who Jesus is for us today. We ask it that we may be more faithfully his people and proclaim him more faithfully to the world around. Amen. Do you please sit? And Steve, could I have that uh, fluorescent back on, please? Because I can't see. <clears throat> and my apologies for my voice. I don't think I've got a cold. I think I've just been singing too much. It's a nice problem to have, I suppose. Well, I wonder whether you um, filled... Yes, Garth, I was afraid you might do that. Um, thank you. Yeah. It's a problem of having two-way switches with two people controlling um, I wonder how you spent last night. Some of you, I guess, were watching last night of the proms and uh, uh, all the great uh, oldies rolling out, including Jerusalem. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And the answer, no, they didn't, has always seemed to me a sufficient response to that question. But it's also true, perhaps, that one day they will. This is the first in a series of sermons on the ways in which Jesus fulfills the promise of the Old Testament. We'll look at Jesus as prophet and priest and king, as wisdom and law, and today as fulfilling the promises about the land. We heard in Deuteronomy what the land meant to Israel, and I'm going to open that up as, as three themes. Would you please turn to it, therefore? Page 187. And we began at verse 6 of chapter 8. Three themes then. First of all, the land is where you're safe. The Israelite people entered this land of Canaan, the promised land, after wanderings through the desert. Wanderings in which they'd been involved in great battles, because even the desert seems to have belonged to somebody. And that was after generations in slavery in Egypt. Some of us are old enough to have lived through the 1960s and the struggle for black liberation in the States. We remember the casual indignities imposed on uh, Americans and indeed on South African black peoples in that other struggle. And that was just casual indignities, scale it up. How many, many times would we have to scale it up? And we can understand, perhaps, what it meant to this people who'd struggled at every step of the way finally to have a land of their own, a place of secure borders, secured by the living God himself. Now, I guess for most people, most of the time in those times, life was hard. Most would have been slaves or serfs, and only very few would have been the elite, and there wasn't a great deal in between. I guess that 95% of us here today would have been in the service of someone else and badly treated. Think what a land for them would have meant. And we can guess some of it, as we try to imagine, we can guess some of it from the histories that we know about. Whenever that possibility, a land of our own, 
has opened up. Peoples have traveled huge distances to see it realized. Think of the Vikings coming here to East Anglia. The Spanish dreaming of a new world. Or that line inscribed on the Statue of Liberty. Send me your huddled masses yearning to be free. It's a line perhaps worth remembering today as we remember what it is that the United States always wants to stand for. We take safety for granted now, but some of you have lived through days when we could not, and some of you have lived in places where you could not. And perhaps all of us can exercise imagination to know what it may feel like when you are simply not free, and then you are, in a land of your own. The land is where you are safe, but the land is also where you can have success. Travel this week has taken me uh, from east to west and back again. And we ourselves live in an extraordinary land, coal and copper in our rocks, dairy in the west, crops in the east. What might it have felt like for them who'd wandered 40 years in the desert to look forward to a land of wheat and barley, vines and pomegranates, flowing with water and olive oil, where the hills were iron and coal. Don't have to look far back to remember restriction in our own country. Some of you will remember, I certainly can, when there was national pricing on bread. There was, uh, just until the year before I was born, in 1956, there was something called the National Loaf. And in that year it was abolished. Now, it shouldn't be too much of a stretch, therefore, even for us, to imagine the blessing of a land where, according to verse 9 in our reading today, bread will not be scarce. Once you're safe from oppression and exploitation outside your borders, it becomes possible for a people to work and to enjoy the fruits of their own labors inside their borders. It's part of what it means to have your own land that you can use its resources and and, uh, use them and keep the results for yourself. You can flourish, you can succeed, you can make investment. It's where you're safe, it's where you can have success. And then, thirdly, just the land is splendid. On Friday, I was at the top of Snowdon. I'd love to say there was a beautiful view. It would suit my purposes, uh, but the cloud was completely locked in and I could barely see my hand in front of my face. Such is life. There wasn't much appreciation for beauty, natural beauty as we think of it in the world of ancient Israel. They knew people could be beautiful. And, and And they appreciated the beauty of what things signified. They talked of the the rivers clapping their hands and trees shouting for joy and singing because of the beauty of God. They spoke of the beauty of the citadel of Zion, the city of the king. And so even in their world, there was space for, for glory and majesty and wonder in the natural world. Even here in Deuteronomy 8, there is a delight in what's called a good land, together with a horror of the harshness 
of nature. In the promised land, there will be springs and pools of water, whereas in the desert, there had been only snakes, scorpions, and hard rocks. And what does all that add up to? Safety, success, and splendor. Well, for them, it meant wealth. Verse 17. Oh, better is 18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. All of this for them meant wealth, and we can be perhaps a bit sniffy about that. Oh, that's terribly Old Testament. Perhaps, though, we've the ones who've grown comfortable. Think what it meant for them. It meant secure from external threat, flourishing within internal development. They could keep the fruits of what their land produced. No one was going to snatch it away from them in tax. Wealth was a sign to them of God's care, protecting the boundaries of the land physically and the boundaries with one another internally, enabling them to flourish within that covenant agreement he'd set, which is why verse 18 links those two. It is he, the Lord, who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. And that's why it's quite right that we can transfer all these promises about covenant and land to the person of Jesus. The covenant in Scripture is not like a covenant as we would think of it, Uh, an agreement made between myself and someone else, and we make binding agreements. The covenant made between God and his people needed from them an obedience it never received. And God was the one responsible for starting up the covenant and for guarding it. And so Jesus can say when we come to Matthew and to the reading that Sue offered, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And other writers in the New Testament too show how the covenant is widened now to include all peoples in its blessing. So in Jesus, within the boundaries of what he has done for us, the people of God can now find all the safety, success, and splendor they could hope for. So let's just review those. Safety, then, first. In Jesus, we are safe. Death has no power to reach us. As most of you know, I think my father died a couple of weeks ago, and my travels this week were to say farewell. First at his funeral, and then by doing what he always did in challenging times, find a mountain and go up it. Some of you have had parents who have died, and you've rejoiced to know that they are among God's people. I've got no such assurance about my father. To all appearances, he was completely uninterested in God. So do I now worry that he has fallen into an eternity without God? No, I do not worry. I don't know an answer, but I don't worry. Because for some reason known to himself, God has given me to know him in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I trust in God. I don't have to spend time worrying. My father's fate is not my responsibility. Death is simply not an anxiety. Jesus is risen. Death is defeated. We are safe. 
And if we are safe from the worst external threat that existence can throw at us, namely death itself, then this cannot be a cowering safety. A safety where we say, well, at least I'm safe. On the contrary, we can throw ourselves into the adventures of life precisely because we know we are safe and nothing can take us from his hand. We are safe. We can have success. Freed from external threat, remember that people could flourish within the land. And similarly, freed from anxiety about death, we can flourish in this life that has been given us in Christ. We can set about the good works we were created for. We can build alongside our neighbors who are here with us today and developing amazing creativity by the power of God's Holy Spirit working within us. As they could use copper and iron, barley and oil, we can use the hospitality of Jim, the creativity of Margaret, the wisdom of Jane and the leadership of Mike. And then splendor. There is, after all, space for simple gratitude that things are the way they are. Simple wonder, simple worship, simple adoration. Not only at what has been done for us, but at the fittingness, the beauty of it all. The wonder of a God who could show us through an ancient land what belonging to him might mean and could then perfect that, even in the face of our failure by bringing to it all the perfection of Christ. And if today we remember that terrible crime ten years ago, we remember it as those who know that death is defeated and how our remembering will be different from that of many. We remember it as those who know that God is still wonderful, though his creation so often lets him down. So in Christ, we have the safety, the success, and the splendor, more of it than we could ever look for. But one final thing to end on. We can look at the words of Jesus and Paul and find in them ample authority to take these old promises of the land and find them renewed and confirmed in Jesus. Jesus is the, the space within which the glory of God can be on display. What was physical has become spiritual. But there's a danger there. The danger that we might think it's just spiritual. That we've lost the sheer physicality of wheat and oil, of water and wine. Some of us find spiritual stuff easy, but many of us don't. And the thought of a new world in which everything that matters has become just spiritual is not one that warms our hearts. Look beside me to plates and cups, to bread and wine. Spiritual, yes, but never again just spiritual. By being spiritual, What we're saying is we're opening up that world of resurrection when Jesus is ascended as Lord, but when he continues to exercise his reign upon earth as the firstborn from the dead, as the risen, physical, fish-eating, bread-breaking Lord. The spiritual now includes the physical. Wine and bread matter in new ways. Matter matters in new ways. Nothing physical is outside the mastery 
of this spiritual Lord. And so we take these elements. We do so with these extraordinary bodies that are now under his lordship. We pray for healing. Once Jesus is risen and has touched this earth, all land then has to be holy. Even the feeding troughs of the animals are holy if the Lord of life has lain in them, lain in one. His feet never walked on our mountains, but one day they shall, for all lands are his. All the stuff of this world given for our good can be renewed, and so we care rightly about the woods and the water, the factories and the fair trade. Splendor is everywhere, and worship is at all times. It belongs at the top of Snowdon, where beauty and wildness reign, but we insist it's also at the bottom, at the rip-off car park, where all those amazing beings, people, gather and bustle and find change and grab coffee and find their worlds colliding. It belongs back in the worlds that we return to, grim as some of them may be. Safety, success, and splendor are given us in Jesus, not so that we may develop a holy huddle, but so that we may go into this world, this land, the lands that we have been given, and they are many for a congregation like ours, all of them in the triumph of knowing who it is that is their Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, forgive us when we make Jesus smaller than he is, when we forget that he is the risen Jesus, Lord of all life. It blows our minds to suppose that a day has come in Jesus when not just that little patch of the Middle East, but all land can be holy. When not just the wheat and the barley of that land, but all the stuff that you have given us can be set aside for your glory. When not just the wonders in that land, but all the wonders we know, as we just walk around this earth, all of it can be touched by Jesus and his glory. And if we make him small, it's because our minds can't cope. And so expand our minds and our hearts to see a world that is touched by the light of grace. And as we take this stuff, the bread and the wine today, make us signals to a world that is not interested in God, of a God that is interested in this world, because he made it, and in Christ He has given us a sign of its redemption. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? We're going to affirm, as we do, our faith in this God who has worked for us in Jesus. I believe in God. The Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.